0: Father, as we've just sung, we pray that you would indeed um, show us Christ. Would you open our eyes afresh to see his beauty? Give us your ears, we pray. Amen. So what we're doing, um, if you've not been before, is over this six-week little period, something slightly different, and we're thinking about um, a topical issue we are working our way through the Bible, thinking about diversity. Um, how the kingdom of God was never meant to be full of the same kind of person. How unity does not necessarily, or certainly not, equal uniformity. Um, why do that? At least two reasons. One is because it's a clear theme in Scripture, as I take it. The gospel of Christ is for all of humanity. We're all made in God's image. And sometimes to fly over the Bible, and remember the big story and how it all fits together is a great thing to do, because in seeing how it all fits together, we see where our place is. We see how we fit in, why the world is as it is, who we are, where we're going, what's gone wrong, what the future holds, but also because we want to love people well. And we need to be reminded of that. We saw in the first week as we kind of went in through Ephesians 2 that the early church was diverse, mixed, and there again and again and again is a call to unity. Birds of a feather do indeed flock together, and so suddenly this diverse church of Jew and Gentile, for example, had to be reminded about forgiveness and mercy and love and kindness. Because people who are not like us, well, we can struggle with them. Whether that be age, ethnicity, political beliefs, educational ability, economic level. And our world is increasingly mixed. And so as a church, we're just kind of pulling into a lay-by briefly to think through some of these things and then begin to discuss what that might mean for us as individuals in our daily lives, the kind of people we speak to, how we treat people, what it teaches us of God as well and of the local church. And actually Oxford is an interesting one because for at least the last 1,000 years or so, probably since about 1096, Oxford has had a divide at its centre, at its heart, the, the town and gown divide. <coughs> University, or universities now, versus the city. There's a famous story told of, um, it was February the 10th, which is what, about three weeks time, 1354. Um, And it started as a minor altercation in a city centre pub over the quality of the wine. And it ended in three days of riots with the loss of over 90 lives. This division between town and gown that is something of this city. You see, when the students go home and the letters in the Oxford Mail about bins or whatever it might be, it's just there under the surface. There's a funny symbiotic relationship. Actually, for that um, 1354 thing, that wasn't until 1955 where there was a proper public reconciliation over that. Things were kind of left to lie for. 600 years and at the heart of the city of Oxford there is this difference in diversity question whether it's educational or economic or ethnic even and so one of the reasons we work at, quite hard at being a, a church for both town and gown is because of that, because of the the reality of a united people in Christ, the um, the dividing wall has been removed, and so what does that mean for us as church? How we do church, the kind of things we care about, the emphases we have, the language we use. The problem is we're not reaching everyone, at all. And the problem as well is that our city is changing increasingly. And the other thing that we need to think about as well is something we spoke about last week, and actually it's been in the news again this week, and it's our inability to engage with people with whom we disagree. There was a fascinating interview on Channel 4, if you saw it, with a guy called Jordan Peterson. I don't think he would call himself a Christian, although he has kind of Christian roots, but it was a fascinating model of how we're not very good at engaging academically with each other, and we just polarise people, and we set up straw men arguments, and just try and move on. If you want to go and Google that on YouTube or whatever, then have a look. Um, And so one of the reasons for doing these things is it's just as a chance for us as as a church to be a sort of catalyst to think and to expand our local vision outside our normal orbit, to think about the, the breadth of God's love, how that might apply to us in East Oxford, Oxford and beyond, whether that be individual lives or corporate lives. One of the things we'll do this week in home groups is I will send out some census data from 2011 for East Oxford. Um, and you can at least see some, some real numbers, at least in terms of ethnicity, and how that might impact us and what that might mean for us, if anything. And there'll be some other aspects to consider, but it'll be a starter for attempt. So that will be with your home group leaders, or at least on the website, um, and they can download it. Um, and so today we've reached the Gospels in our sort of Bible overview. We started off Genesis, we then came to Jonah last week, then we're in the um, Gospels this week, next week it'll be Acts, and then after that we've got some Epistles and then Revelation. But before we get there, I want to introduce Matthew's Gospel to you, because it's an unusual one to be looking at in one sense. One of the big surprises as you read Matthew's Gospel is that there are so, so many so-called outsiders there. They receive such prominent treatment. They're often in the limelight. Let me back up a bit and explain why that is a surprise. Um, unashamedly, the Gospels have different agendas in one sense, as as they wrote. The Gospel writers were not simply seeking to write history, but they had a particular context and people in mind as they wrote. That reflected on what they wrote, how they wrote it, why they wrote it. So Luke, for example, people say, um, he was very likely, he was a Gentile, a non-Jew. And that kind of lens reflects the sort of stories he presents and the emphasis he presents on them. Maybe there's a focus on the outsider from Luke, a reminder Jesus came for all kinds of people, the breadth of humanity, you get the shepherds um, at the Nativity, for example. Or John, if you've done any work in John, you'll know it's a, it's a gospel of signs. He stacks up the evidence for us, trying to convince us Jesus is who he says he is. I was there, I saw him, my life was transformed, and so these are written that you may believe he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is selective in what he writes. But Matthew's interesting. Because Matthew, we know, has a particular kind of Jewish flavour, trying to show fellow Israelites that Jesus is the king they've been waiting for. Here is the Messiah we've been longing for. We saw it over Christmas in our little um, series in Matthew 2 and the prophets. Old Testament prophet after Old Testament prophet after Old Testament prophet um, stacked up one by one by one to prove to us He is who he says he is. Isaiah 7, it's Jesus, God with us. Micah 5 we saw. It's a shepherd ruler. Hosea 11, Jeremiah 31. Here is the true son fleeing from Egypt. Or Matthew as he um, presents the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5. Jesus is presented as a kind of mosaic type figure. A new Moses coming with the law of God. A new law, expounding the law for a new covenant or even some say the structure of Matthew as a whole is sort of five big teaching chunks and so we're meant to see the parallel with the Torah Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy so Matthew has this audience in mind and if that's the case if that's the case, why is there this thread on non-Israel? why do we get these surprising people again and again and again? with prominence, they come to worship, they come to trust, they come to engage with Jesus. Why is that? Again, think Christmas and think Magi. They were the unusual foreign astrology practising magicians from far off countries. They're the proverbial outsiders. What are they doing in Matthew's accounts of Jesus being born? Or the genealogy. Again, I've preached on the genealogy before. I'm at Mordom Road. But you get this messy lineage. Matthew records for us all kinds of non-ethnic Israel, grafted in, given prominent places, rejoiced in even. Someone said, Matthew's genealogy includes the outcast, the scandalous and the foreigner. The family Jesus comes from anticipates the family he came from. Which I think is right. Why does Matthew, with an emphasis on persuading those familiar with the Jewish scriptures, why does he have this thread of unusual people running through? Like the Magi, like the genealogy, like like this Canaanite woman for today in chapter 15. Why does he end up on the Great Commission, Matthew 28? Well, the answer is because he's understood the promise to Abraham. And Abraham was to be a blessing to the nations. He's understood that Israel was to be a light to the world. Isaiah 49, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. He knows Jesus has not just come to be King of Israel. Although, as we'll see in our passage, there's a temporal priority there. But this kingdom was always meant to reach the ends of the earth. He's dropping the stone into the pond, and the ripples go out. We had a glimpse of it with Jonah. This week, I think it's increasingly clear and focused. So let me read our verses again. It may be a familiar passage for some of us, but some of it might be quite new. I'm going to read from verse 21. <clears throat> Leaving that place. Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus didn't answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away. She keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He, He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith, your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. What's going on? Well, at this point in Matthew, Jesus primarily has been in Israel. He's been in Galilee. And we've met a Gentile army officer, Centurion, chapter 8. There was this trip across the lake to Gentile cities as well, but primarily his time has been within Israel, engaging with the people of Israel. And yet this encounter is extraordinary because she ends the story with the most highly commended in the gospel for her faith. She has that award. The story comes off the back of Jesus Taking a break, withdrawing from crowds, from conflict, heading out of Jewish territory, going northwest towards Tyre and Sidon. I think there's a recuperation thing it seems to be going on. And then, verse twenty-two, this Canaanite woman from that vicinity arrives. What do you know about her? In one sense, there's lots we don't know. I don't know what she looks like. I don't know where she comes from. She. She just sort of appears and disappears. There's this small cameo performance from this small woman, but actually she's very important because of what we do know. It's striking that Matthew describes her as a Canaanite woman, because I'm told that probably wasn't an ethnic term used in those days. In Mark, do you remember what she's called? Not rhetorical. Thank you, Syrophoenician, checking you're awake. That would have been much more common. But for Matthew, he's not making a point so much about ethnicity. This is a theological point. Because ever since Genesis, God's people and the Canaanites were not friends. And so here is Matthew using Bible language for the most persistent and unpleasant of Israel's enemies. A title synonymous with idolatry, with immorality, with cruelty, with decadence, with pride, with all kinds of horrible stuff. And for a Canaanite woman to come and approach him. And then for him to engage with her says something extraordinary about the scope of the gospel, about about the breadth of God's kingdom. She's a Canaanite, she's a woman as well. And like it or not, in those days, respectable Jewish men with authority would not particularly engage in public places with women. Her her calling out to him and hassling them as a group would be frowned upon. It was awkward. (coughs) Inappropriate. She's a Canaanite, she's a woman, and more than that, she comes with this request before Jesus because her daughter is suffering from demon possession a malignant evil spirit of some description that has afflicted her and no doubt her family. It's worth just saying it's not a key thing for us to get into at this point. They do come and chat to me afterwards. But there is more to this world than we can see, the Bible says. There's more than simply material stuff. There is a spiritual element, whether good or bad. And it's just worth recognising that our culture, in having a problem with that, in not believing in this, in struggling with it, sets us in a sort of minority when it comes to global terms or historical terms. The Bible is very clear. There is more than we can see to this world. And so through the cultural lens of the time, it's almost three strikes and you're out. She's Canaanite... She's a woman. She's got a demon-possessed daughter. She is a square peg in a round hole. An unlikely example of faith and anyone to get, unlikely one to get approval from Jesus, but she gets approval from Jesus. It's an unusual interaction, isn't it? Maybe it leaves us with questions. It's unusual because verse 22, she describes him as a son of David which was unusual for a Canaanite where she got that from how can she see who he is despite being an enemy of the people of God that's strange and particularly in light of some of the Pharisees from the previous section whom he's been engaging with and who don't get who he is it seems that he's withdrawing from them (coughs) But it's secondly unusual as well, not just for her recognition of who Jesus is, but for the way he treats her. I know people wrestle with this. It's an unusual thing because he changes his mind, it seems. And also, is he being offensive, as he refers to her seemingly as a dog? For some people, that's a real stumbling block. Um, Let's try and look at each of those. They're changing his mind things. Uh, You see the initial reluctance um, in verse 24. It seems like perhaps he's speaking to his disciples, but she's overhearing in some way. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. That's a technical term. You've had it already in Matthew chapter 10 when he sends the disciples out on the mission field. And it's the focus really of, of him looking at or speaking to Israel first. In one sense, they are the priori- priority at this point. Having said that, it's a rule, it's a rule that's been broken. And there have been exceptions already Gentile centurions, demon possession in the Decapolis, you've had those already. So it's not a sort of be all and end all, but it's a general rule. But actually, I think the way he responds there in 24 is in such a way to elicit faith from her. He's drawing out from her. A faith and a trust. It's as if he's saying, come on. Come on, what have you got? And so she kneels before him, verse 25. And then you get this weird word from Jesus. Almost it sounds like he's adding insult to injury. Verse 26, he replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. What that means is that means Israel are the children and Gentiles, as they were referred to often in a derogatory manner, are the dogs. Dogs, like the Canaanites, were seen as unclean by Israel. It's, it's a common term, but it would be deliberately <coughs> offensive. She so just caught Jesus on a bad day? What's going on here? I, I think the best answer is this. I think Jesus is not speaking a word of insult to her, but rather it's a word of parable. He is saying, you are a mother. You know what dinner time is like, don't you? You know how families eat. Imagine dinner time routine if you've got a pet, a dog particularly, welcome. The children eat at the table first, And then afterwards, the pets are allowed to eat, at least in their culture. It's not right to get things the other way around, is it? The animals can't eat food from the table before the children do. Imagine that. I'm sorry, kids. Remember how it goes. You can have what's left when the pets have finished eating. That doesn't work. And so when Jesus is saying, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, he's saying, my children, for now, are the priority I was sent to them first to show them the fulfilment of the scripture's promises to show them that that I am the fulfilment of all the prophets and priests and kings to show them I am the fulfilment of the temple. But then immediately after he's resurrected what happens? Go to the nations. Take this message to the nations. The stone has been dropped into the pond and the ripples are to go as far as they can. So it's not an insult, he's telling her a story. Please understand, there's an order here. I'm going to Israel first, and then the Gentiles can hear. Okay. But then we look at her, and her response is extraordinary. I think there's incredible wisdom, and outstanding humility. Can you wonder whether he's told this story in such a way as to elicit these things in her? So there's wisdom, and she says, okay, Lord, yeah, I get that. But the dogs do eat from the table, don't they? He's told her a parable. She responds to the challenge and says, I get it, I'm not from Israel. I'm not one of the lost sheep. I I don't worship the God that the Israelites worship, but therefore I don't have a place at the table. I accept that. I take your premise. But then, with the wisdom comes the humility. I, I need to eat. Can I have some crumbs, please? I think her humility is is extraordinary. One writer um, wrote on this. And I found it very helpful. Um, listen to this. He says she doesn't take offence. She doesn't stand on her rights. She says, "I may not have a place at the table, but there's more than enough on the table for everyone in the world, and I need mine now, please." Continues, she's wrestling with Jesus in the most respectful way and she won't take no for an answer. But Then he says this, in Western cultures we don't have anything like this kind of assertiveness. We only have assertion of our rights. We don't know how to contend unless we're standing up for our rights, standing up for our dignity and our goodness and saying, this is what I am owed. But this woman isn't doing that at all. This is rightless assertiveness. Here's the summary. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She's saying, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. It's humility. It's the ability to stand before the Lord, be honest about her needs. And to throw herself upon him for mercy, which I take it is why she's commended for her faith. And forever she is a model for us of what faith looks like. And so, verse twenty-eight, the, Jesus said to her woman, "You have great faith; your request is granted." And her daughter was healed at that moment. Just a word. So she's here to stretch our view of who Jesus is, of who he came for, of what the kingdom of God looks like. But I think as well she is an example of faith there for us as well. So I just want us to sort of pull in again and think about the shape of her encounter with Jesus, what we can learn as we consider how she responds to him. I think it's really simple. There are three things. One is she recognises her need before Jesus. You know, she is totally helpless. She can't do it herself. She can't deal with her daughter's darkness, her daughter's brokenness, her daughter's suffering. She cannot fix it. The situation is, she can't do it. She's out of her depth. So she recognises her need before Jesus. Secondly, she recognises who he is. That is, there's a grasp of something of his identity. You see, verse 22, he is... Um, Lord, Son of David, you get Lord again in verse 25, so she recognises her need, she she knows who he is, but then here's, here's the end, she, she humbly but confidently throws herself upon him for mercy, she approaches him, she... She's on her knees before him, not because of who she is, but because of who he is, she appeals to him. Not because she is good, but because he is good. And that's a model for us in terms of what faith looks like. I think it's a model for that initial faith, initial trust in the Lord, to, to deal with our sin and suffering for the first time, to make us clean again, to forgive us. No amount of effort or standing on our rights can deal with that. We're helpless without him. We need to come before him in humility. Only you can forgive. Only you can heal. Only you can bring the suffering to an end. Only you can put back together what has been broken. But it strikes me as well, it's a model for daily faith. Not just that once-in-a-lifetime decision, Faith, but the dailiness of turning to him and trusting him, acknowledging our helplessness without him. Acknowledging his identity and power, reminding ourselves who he is, but more than that, to humbly throw ourselves upon him. Maybe that's you each morning. The start of each week, as you look ahead to what's to come and think, I... but I can't do this. Lord, but you can. And you are good. Maybe it's something particular in life that we are we're trying to bring about. The kind of thing we've tried to do in our own strength, perhaps, in the daily reality of Monday to the next Monday. But maybe something we need to just reaffirm and say, Lord, I'm sorry, I've tried, I can't do it. I'm sorry for trying without you. But remind me who you are. And we throw ourselves upon him afresh. We come before him in humility. Not because we are good, but because he is. and we need to say he doesn't always answer our prayers in that sense does he he's not always like the woman here and her daughter being healed at that moment sometimes he does sometimes it's extraordinary sometimes he says do you know what it might be hard but just trust me and we'll do it together and i'm with you my grace is sufficient for you keep your eyes on me keep trusting me don't look elsewhere But actually, I'm not going to remove this thing at this time. Rather, I'm going to show you that I am enough. This is an example for us each morning. As we look ahead to the day. But then Matthew ends. He ends, as we probably know, and we'll be looking at this in about March, And possibly April, start of April. um, Matthew 28. I'm going to read what we often call the Great Commission um, before we draw our sermon to a close and continue with the service. It says, After Jesus has been raised again. You see, if we say Matthew has understood the commission to Abraham, the promise to Abraham, then maybe it ends, as we might expect, with a dot, dot, dot. This message of the risen Jesus, taken by weak people to the ends of the earth, to more than just the Canaanites. The rock is in the pond and the ripples are moving. And so Matthew's Gospel begins with a messy genealogy full of all kinds of messy people. But Matthew's Gospel ends with what sounds like an impossible task as his people, his messy people, are given a message and are accompanied and empowered by him into the messy world to live and to speak for him. To point people to our King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much for this Canaanite woman. Thank you for expanding and stretching and challenging our perception of the kind of people who you love. Thank you too for her as a, an example of how to approach you and to engage with you, to deal with you. Will we come before you as, as individuals as, and as a church recognising our brokenness, our weakness our natural inability Lord, we can't put this broken world back together And so we come before you in weakness but remembering your identity and your strength and your power. And we throw ourselves upon you. Humblest please that we might cease from trying to do things in our own strength. But rather increasingly to look to you as the one who is good. Would that shape us corporately as well. Keep our eyes fixed on you, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.